With that, let's pray. We're going to start this great little book of Habakkuk. Uh, Really, this is a book that started many revivals, whether you realize it or, or not. We this week we. I don't know what anniversary it was, but it was. I saw on Facebook that it was the anniversary of the Reformation, and really it was a verse from Habakkuk that moved in Martin Luther's heart through the Book of Romans that really um, that changed his whole world and his whole understanding of God and salvation and, and this idea of grace. Um, so I'm excited about this book. Let's pray, and we'll begin. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would, um, Lord, that you would help us to understand the historical setting in which this little three-chapter book sits. Father, we thank you for the relevance of your word. We thank you uh, that all of it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Father, we pray that as we uh, endeavor to uh, study uh, this book, that you would guard us from error that you would encourage us through your word. We live in a time in our uh, country's history where there's uh, so much division and worry and anxiety and fear. And and so, Lord, we pray that as your followers, uh, Lord, you would, um, Lord, that you would help us to to, to not get lost in in the the media frenzy. And, And Lord, you would help us to be good citizens. But ultimately, Lord, We ask that you would help us to keep our eyes on you in the midst of of a world that seems to be uh, falling apart before our very eyes. Lord, we thank you that our our hope is in Christ. And Lord, in you, uh, you provide all of the security, everything we need uh, to to manage our lives. And so, Lord, we look to you for hope, for peace, for joy. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you not, will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We come to you and we ask that you would help us now by your spirit. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So in my study... I've come to see that there is a nation that is completely divided. Uh, Corruption exists at the highest levels. The economy is stagnant and people are struggling financially. The nation is facing a true threat by an evil people. And those who are of faith are struggling to know and to understand what God is doing in their midst. Now, I think it's possible that as I open up with this introduction that you think I'm talking about today. I'm talking about Israel during Habakkuk's day. I'm not at all talking about what's happening here. But there are some similarities that we could learn from Habakkuk. Uh, I initially had decided I thought I would just sort of jump into Habakkuk and sort of Uh, begin working through the text. I was planning on doing basically all of chapter one today, but as I sort of was revisiting this text over the last few weeks, I decided a a couple days ago that I I, I believe it would be important to slow down and only cover the first four verses. I extended our time through this book by a week um, because I think that the historical context to, uh, to understand the setting is critical. Uh, Now, in your bulletins is a lesson to grab a bulletin. You'll see a little piece of paper. The piece of paper is exactly what you see on the screen. I I do not expect you to have this memorized by the end of today or even by by next, I say tomorrow, next Sunday. Um, But as long as you are a Bible-believing, Bible-studying follower of Christ, there are some historical lessons that are going to continue 
to surface over the course of your life, the course of your walking with Christ. And so the, the more touches you have with the historical setting of what happened in Israel, the, the better equipped you'll be. And so today my aim, leading into the first four verses, is to sort of set a, a picture for us of Israel. There is so much to cover um, when we talk about Israel. Like, I, I'm not even, I want to give us like a little, little tiny, um, you know, like a communion cup portion of history. Um, Israel is one of those places we lead a trip over there every three years or so. Um, I- Israel is a place that you can spend years and years and years. There's so much history. Um, and so today I want to do a little survey. Um, this map sort of works, this map, this flow chart, which is in your bulletin. If you can read the words or not, that's another question. Um, it sort of works from left to right. So back over here, we see not on the picture, King Saul, David, Solomon, the, the first three kings of Israel. Um, it's about a thousand years prior to Christ. Then the nation is divided. And then the top track here, we follow the northern kingdom. This is the 10 tribes of Israel. For those of us who have been going to Tuesday night Bible study, it was on Wednesdays for many years, and now it's Tuesdays. It's been a year and a half, and I'll eventually get it. Um, We've been studying through kings. And so this doesn't really look at the kings. It really shows the prophets. So you see the northern kingdom of Israel on this line. And it comes to a stop 722 years before Christ. The main prophet during this window was Elijah. Um, All of the kings were were virtually evil um, that that ruled the northern kingdom. They they, they broke off from the nation. They wanted nothing to do with the line of David any longer. Um, The first king sort of... um, replicated the worship of Israel through idols and false gods because he knew the people would have a desire to continue worshiping. Uh, In 722 BC, uh, the Assyrians, which are far north, northern Iraq, um, Nineveh, which this is what this line is up here. You see the people of Nineveh. Jonah existed just prior, uh, 755 BC, so about 30 years prior to the Assyrians coming to, to conquer uh, the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom would be taken into captivity um, and they, they no longer existed. Now we're following, for the most part, the southern kingdom for Habakkuk. You'll see the kingdom is split. Um, you have uh, the, the kingdom of, of the southern kingdom. It's no longer referred to as Israel. It's known as Judah. It's composed of two tribes and it, its existence goes to 586 B.C. Historically, this is fascinating. So at 586 B.C., the nation of Israel is totally and completely done away with. No longer in existence. Everybody, uh, they would be conquered by the Babylonians, you know, the story of Daniel. Um, They're carried away into captivity. Uh, Eventually, the Greeks would come to power. Herod the Great would then continue to scatter the Jewish people. They were scattered all around the world. Um, And 2,500 years later, on May 14th, 1940, I think it's May 14th. It's definitely in May 14th of 1948, the nation of Israel was born again and made a state. Uh, so, So one of the first lessons when you make your trip to Israel when you land in Israel, the first thing that happens is you land, into, you land into a miracle. The fact that they exist as a nation after 2,500 years of being scattered is, is mind-boggling. Um, so, uh, quickly, as we move along here, right at this level, Habakkuk comes on scene. Um, at this point, I'm sorry, these lines are all blurred up on the screen here. At this point, this is 586. This is Daniel in exile, and so we see that there's some return, but they're not a nation. So Habakkuk is just prior to the Babylonians coming in. Um, They still existed as a nation. And so this is where I want to sort of pick up our story. Uh, I'm going to do my best. I've given you the outline. I want to just sort of talk through 
uh, what's been going happening. Um, the first king of Israel was Saul. Um, during this window, the people of Israel, they had entered into the promised land. Uh, they were ruled and governed by God directly. But as they looked out amongst the nations, all of the other nations had kings. And so they desperately wanted a, a king. They were trying to keep up with the Joneses. And they said, they have a king. We want a king. We want to be governed by a king. God says, all right, you want a king? Suckers, I'll give you a king. Choose whoever you want. And so they selected Saul to be their king. And in large part, Saul was, was completely disappointing. Uh, he, he might have started well, but really uh, th- there's not much left from Saul that's, 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 that's great to write home about. Um, then we enter King David. Prior to Saul's death, God had anointed King David to be the next king. Uh, he was a young little buck. He he was not anything impressive to look at. He was a child when he was discovered. Um, the story is very fresh in my mind. Uh, I've, I've come to see that raising boys is a little bit different than raising girls, or at least in my home it is. So every night with my boys, they're like, hey, Dad, come read the Bible to us. Well, what story do you want me to read tonight? King David killing Goliath. I think they get bored of it by now, but every night they're singing one little, like five little stones and, and, and uh, you know, cutting off Goliath's head. They're just like enthralled with it. Every night I sit down and read about this young little kid going down there, seeing the war. It's like, what are you guys all afraid of? What's going on? Well, there's this giant down here and he's taunting us. And he said, if somebody kills him, then we can take all their people in captivity. But if he kills us, we're going in. It was like, I'll take care of business. King puts all of his armor on him and... Dave's like, I don't need this stuff. I just need five rocks. I'll go down there, just like the lion and the bear. One shot, boom, right between the eyes. He goes down dead. Then little David runs over, picks up his sword, chops off his head, and the people celebrate. David was awesome. He was like a war, like as a former warrior, he's like the warrior's warrior. Uh, we, we, we love him and his rawness in the scriptures. Um, most people that that know the scriptures, they're drawn uh, during seasons of their life to the Psalms. And you read these Psalms that were um, written by, by David, and it's like the guy seems schizophrenic. Like you, you read one, and it's like, where, O oh Lord, can I go from your presence, your, your, you know, your peace, and you just surround me. I'm engulfed with who you are. Then you get to the next line is, I am famished. I am destitute to die. Where's God? He's never to be found. I'm hopeless. My enemies surround me. It's like, whoa. Then you just, there's just like a rawness there. Like there's, there's no hiding up with David. He had huge character flaws. Um, uh, this, is not, this is a rhetorical question, meaning don't answer. Um, most, I would say most of us. I don't think any of us in this room have committed adultery, then murdered uh, the girl's husband, um, but David did. And yet he's called this man after God's own heart. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The thing that I think that separates David from a lot of the other characters is he fell and he stumbled greatly, but he also was convicted by God and he, he repented and he really in some of his psalms where you see him longing for restoration and, and, and being brought back into the fold of God, it's, it, his heart is, there's so many lessons we can learn from David. The, the guy, is, I, I love him because of, uh, there's no facade with the Bible and how David is presented. Uh, there's hope for us, all of us who are imperfect, to see that in our imperfection, we can have a heart after God's own heart. Uh, David longed to build the temple. The, the people of Israel had been nomadic for many of the years before coming into the land. And then as they settled, the idea to build a temple in Jerusalem, uh, the, the God had begun to sort of put this on their hearts, this land uh, where we know the golden dome of the rock. Many things had happened on that dome over the years. That's the place in Genesis where, uh, where Isaac was taken to be sacrificed uh, where just many great things happened in that location. And so the temple uh, was something that God had given instructions on how to build. David 
longed and yearned to, to be the man who built this temple. The nation during his time was marked with much war. Um, there's a lot of conquering. And at the end of his life, when it was time to build the temple, God said, David, you know, there's too much blood on your hands and I cannot use you to build the temple. But so David, knowing that he wouldn't build the temple, he brought in all of the supplies. He, he built like everything sort of, it's like going to Ikea. Or I remember a few years ago, I was, my dad for Christmas gave us one of those playground sets and like 10 different boxes showed up. And the boxing show, it was like you had to read the instructions. Like I was, or for me, I'm looking at Daniel probably back there shaking his head going, oh, you don't have to read your, I don't even know where Daniel is, but I can just see him. You didn't need to read those directions. So the directions had every little part was numbered. And so we, like our whole backyard is filled with all of the parts in numeric order. And then all we had to do was take part one and one A and one B, lay them out over here, take this screw. And we just sort of followed the directions This is exactly what David did for his son, Solomon. He got everything ready. He got all of the instructions, even down to the Psalms where the worship for the temple, David wrote the music, prepared it so that when the temple was set up, everything was there for his son just to follow along. And so David eventually dies before the temple was built. Solomon, his son, comes on scene. We know him as the, the wisest man in history. Um, he, he asked for wisdom. He was born, to say he was born with a silver spoon would be an understatement. Um, because of his father's conquering of the world, Solomon had wisdom from God. He had great wealth from God through his father. And he lived, really, it was the golden era of Israel. He He had everything he possibly could need. He lived. There were some threats from other nations, but but really they were empty threats. He lived in a great time of peace. He built the temple, which became one of the modern marvels of the ancient world. I mean, 25 acres, huge. We go today and we look at just remnants of, well, we actually have the second temple, but I'm I'm going, like, I got to stay within my my communion glass of history. But, But... huge facility. And at the end of his life, or as he lived his life, he was sort of led astray. Uh, during our, our study of Kings, we, we realized that in his request for wisdom, his request for wisdom was really in relationship to governing the nation. And we realized that he didn't necessarily make any, any request about women, because uh, women were sort of a problem for him. Um, he had, I think it was 700 concubines, 300 wives. Um, and these women sort of basically led him astray as he married, uh, you know, during that era for a king to have multiple wives for other nations sort of to build allegiances. These, wisdom, these women sort of led him off course. And I believe that at the end of his, at the end of his life, I think he began to sort of come back to God. He began to investigate or or ponder life and sort of reflection in his old age. Where did he go wrong? How could he have done better? I think he began to see problems on the horizon. Um, Saturday morning, we have a men's Bible study that we've been studying Proverbs. And I think that some of the, um, these, these clouds that are forming on the horizon he recognizes, he says in Ecclesiastes, you spend your whole life accumulating wealth. You spend your whole life building this up, all this stuff up only to die and essentially, Gunner's paraphrase, to leave it to a moron who's going to basically waste it away and, and it destroy your whole life's work. Like you die. These great kings in one verse, they slept with their fathers and, and they're swallowed up and then history moves on. He's, he's grap- grappling with the reality of all of us, like we're all facing death. We all like we'll go through our life. We'll die. History will move on. And he's he's wrestling with this. He's pleading with his son. Be wise. Don't waste your life. And so he dies. And it's not long after his death. That the nation goes into turmoil. 
as soon as he dies, one guy who I'm blanking on his name that I know James Fredericks, my Bible little thesaurus back there. If I, where is James? Is he here? Then that king that fought with Solomon or the, uh, Re- Rehoboam? Jeroboam, bad guy. See, I told you, he's in exile down in Egypt. Word gets to him like, hey, Solomon died. Jeroboam comes up to sort of fight for the throne with Rehoboam. Rehoboam had sort of asked his, he goes to his, the, his dad's advisors, the old guys, and he says, hey, how do I reign and rule? What, what advice do you give me? And he says, just be loving and kind, like essentially don't tax the people, just let them go. They'll do anything for you once they know that you're here with them. Then he goes to his young guys and says, hey guys, what do you think? They're like, you got to show them that your father's, your thumb is heavier than your father's fist. Tax them, work them, show them who's boss. So the young guy follows the advice of the young guys. And in that moment, the nation is divided. Jeroboam basically takes 10 tribes to the north. They have a little vote. They leave to the north. Uh, Rehoboam tries to lead from the south. The nation is, is totally and completely split. Um, there's, there's kings, mostly bad. Every now and again, you'll get a, a blip of the map where, where a, a, a good, good we use loosely. Uh, a few weeks ago in our Tuesday night Bible study, when we looked at the kings, we're going through and Rick's like, we're kind of like having, well, there was this. So I think, think he could be good. You know, like there's a, there's a little bit of goodness in him. So Let's vote that guy good, you know? And all of these kings and, and prophets sort of come along. And then all of a sudden, a bad one comes up. Um, this is where I have to get to my notes. This is, I'm so bad with names. Or maybe I just want to, Amnon, Ammon comes up. He's a king for like two years. He dies. And then his eight-year-old boy becomes king, Josiah, a godly king. But I've been pondering this this week, an eight-year, like, you know, we're in the middle of elections, and uh, there's no eight-year-old running. So I'm trying to imagine my life, and the closest thing I have to an eight-year-old in my house is Ellie. Ellie's seven. She's going to be eight here soon. And I think, what would it look like if Ellie was on the ballot and she won? <laughs> it could be so much fun for at least, like, Six months. I would see a lot of glitter sort of instituted. Um, you know, free like perfume and lipstick and fingernail polish and shoes would be available to everybody with the, the more bling, the better. But then after a few months, I think things might go south. Like I'm not sure over the course of four years how we would look with an eight-year-old reigning and ruling. But somehow Josias pulls it off. He grows, he develops. At 16 years old, something, we're not quite sure what happens, but he has an encounter with God. And at 16 years old, he devotes his life and surrenders totally and completely to God. It's an amazing thing, and this this awakening in the nation happens. Josiah is king. He begins to sort of rout the southern kingdom of its idols, of the false worship, false idolatry. He eventually, as history sort of unfolds, he decides that he's going to rebuild or repair the temple that has sort of fallen and to where it wasn't functional. And there's a story somewhere there in Kings or Second Kings towards the end, or you can Google it. There's a story where they're basically punched through a wall and Josiah and one of the priests discover the scrolls, the Pentateuch, the the first five books of the Bible, and they begin to read. And, and we're told that they're just weeping and weeping and weeping for their nation. And God begins to move. And, you know, Habakkuk is, is on scene during this window. And so I imagine for the prophets to see this king sort of humble himself, worship God, uh, cleanse them as a nation so that they could worship the true God would have just been ecstatic. But during this time, there's three nations um, that were of power. You have the Assyrians to the north. They were, they'd already taken northern Israel into captivity. Um, they were 
probably the largest, uh, most powerful nation during that time. However, during this window, they'd sort of peaked, and they're in their decline, and they would sort of fizzle out. You had the Egyptians to the south. They also were a great power, but they also were in decline. And then you have the Babylonians who were increasing in power. They were huge. They were ruthless and violent. And like the closest that I think that we could even begin to comprehend them is if you were to take like a group like ISIS, and if you think back over the last two or three years of the news of the, the horrific things they have done and videotaped to, to bring horror to people and fear to people, but if you multiplied them in power and organization and that they were sort of like, if you merged them sort of with Russia and allowed them to really conquer and a threat, like you'd come close to what the Babylonians were. So they're the third... Um, they're the third greatest nation sort of in this window. Israel, was, was, they were nobody. They weren't feared by anybody. Their, their, their nation was split. The north was already gone. So when we're talking about Israel during this time, it's really Judah. It's two little tribes. They own some key land in Israel. Um, one commentator said that, that Israel during this time or Judah during this time could be equated to like Rhode Island. Nobody's afraid of Rhode Island. Like, like, what has Rhode Island done? Like, are they? Do they make the news? Do they? Like, even in this election, are they? Do they have any influence? Like, I haven't heard anybody talking about their electoral votes. I have no idea. And and so here's Israel. That they have, they can strike fear in nobody. They're going through this awakening, and the the Bible tells a story of Neku. I think it's Neku the second. He's down in Egypt. He wants to come up through Israel uh, using the Via Maris. It's the road that would connect. uh, Still, it's very critical today. It would connect Egypt up to the northern part. There was a road uh, that was traveled there. Um, He sent a letter requesting from Josiah, hey, I would like to bring my army up through your land and then to continue up into Assyria. And so the story sort of unfolds and... And Josiah meets him and says, no. Like he meets him at uh, Megiddo, which is a mountain. If you go to Israel, it's still there. You, you'll, there's a site up top. Um, it overlooks the Jezreel Valley. He goes down there or goes up there, meets him in this location and says, sorry, I don't want your guys to go there. But he's already sort of brought his armies in. And then Josiah says, no, you can. And Nico says, well, that's great. I'm still going to do it anyhow. Josiah falls back to his men. And I was talking to Anne. I'm like, this guy, Josiah, is, from a military perspective, this guy's awesome. Like from one warrior to another warrior, like it might not have been the wisest, but, but from the warrior class, this king has, <laughs> when he fell back, he's like, just give me one of the u- uniforms. I'm fighting with the men. Probably very unwise on his part. Normally you want the leader sort of back, calling the shots and let the warriors fight and the other guys but he arms himself up. He sneaks into the ranks of his own people and he says, we're going to attack him. And so basically he goes in there, he fights. It doesn't, it doesn't go very well. And uh, he shot, I think he's shot with an arrow. Eventually he dies. And then we're left with his two sons. His two sons in, in virtually no time at all. I think it was 11 years, some, some short, like a decade. These two sons try to rule and they, they take the nation back into idolatry back into all of the evil, back into all of the stuff that's happening. Corruption's now, now uh, taking over. And they, they basically, um, if this is Habakkuk, it's like on, when you look at the maps of kings, it's like a little window right here before they're taken into captivity. And so I say all of this, taking quite a bit of time, um, to sort of lay the, the context. So here's Habakkuk. I had you turn there for a reason. We are actually going to look at these couple of verses. Um, so the very first verse says, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Um, the word oracle literally is, is defined as a burden. Here Habakkuk, this prophet who we know nothing about other than the pages that are written here, we, we don't know anything about him 
he sees this burden. And historically where he sets, based on the timestamp that we see within here, he's a prophet that lived during um, uh, Josiah's period, seeing this, gr- this, this great awakening, this great revival. The hearts of the people are turning back to God and it gets to just like right before it's fulfilled and then he's killed and everything goes back way worse. So he has all of this hope and then all of a sudden the carpet's pulled out, everything's gone and he sees this, this burden of what's going to happen to their nation. Um, Habakkuk is a word that means to embrace or to wrestle with. There's some, there, there's some, there's some question over that. I think it, the picture, my opinion from my research, it seems to me that Habakkuk is, he ends up embracing God, but there's this sort of, I think of Jacob's ladder, there's this wrestling match with God. This, this, this prophetical book is not necessarily a book to the people exactly, it's a prophet wrestling with God, and then we see it, and then it becomes this prophetical book to the people of Israel. And so he's wrestling with God, trying to figure out what, what God is doing, how how could they be so close to this great revival to see it all just implode that quickly? It's a weighty thing. And in this book of Habakkuk, to give you sort of an outline, um, verses these first four verses, this is sort of Habakkuk speaking to God. Then I would put a, a line or sort of make a note between verses four and five. And take it all the way down to verse 11. And in between verse 11 and 12, I put another little line if you're a guy like me who likes, or lady who likes to write up in their Bible. So we have Habakkuk asks a question. Then in verse 5, God's going to respond. God's going to respond down to verse 11. God is done speaking. And then Habakkuk is going to speak again in verse 12 of chapter 1 through verse 1 of chapter 2. Then when Habakkuk is done speaking, God's going to reply in chapter 2, verse 2. And that's going to continue all the way to the end of chapter 2, verse 20. And then finally, chapter 3 is a prayer of Habakkuk in response to everything that's been said. And it goes silent. So if you're going to read this book throughout the week and sort of study on your own, one of the key things to understand in this book, and really all of the Bibles, understand who's speaking Who are they speaking to? Who's responding? Who's he responding to? Where does it begin and end so that you can sort of follow the dialogue? And so here, Habakkuk, we see two questions in these two verses. The first question here, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Question number one. Habakkuk says, God, I've been calling out to you. I've been praying. I've been seeking you. I'm asking you for help. And when I call out to you, it sounds like utter silence. Where are you? He doesn't question throughout this book God's existence. His question is, is God, I know you're there and I'm calling out to you and you're silent. You're not responding. I'm screaming out to you that there's violence all around me and you're not saving, you're not helping these innocent people. He's seeking God in the midst of theft, perversion, lying, murder, adultery, sickness of the people, nations threatening this this nation that God created. He says, God, why aren't you hearing our prayers? How could you take Josiah who was leading us? I don't know if you've ever been here. Maybe that's another rhetorical question. Is the longer you're alive, I think the more times you're going to hit these valleys where you're forced to, to really wrestle. Um, the path to Christian maturity, I think, requires this sort of wrestling with the question of where is God in the midst of this? It really is the Judeo-Christian worldview that says there is one God who created all, who is loving, who is just, who is merciful. 
that it's our view, this view, that really thrusts us into the tug of war of how do we deal with evil around us? How do we deal with everything that's happening? If God exists, how is there so much suffering? For, for those atheists who say there is no God, we're just a bunch of amoebas floating around and sort of doing stuff, there's no problem because it's survival of the fittest. You look at the great things in the 21st century of, of evils that happened during that century, uh, it, it was led by guys who really didn't believe in God and had no, like there was just no issue. But, but for those of us who hold this view, who, who believe in the God of the Scriptures, we'll come to times in our life where there's a true tug-of-war of, of dealing with how, how do we reconcile this loving God with this that is going on? Um, I, I remember sort of looking back in my Christian life, my first major crossroad, I don't know if my first, but, but, but looking back on my life, the crossroads where I struggled the most was the season between 2003 and 2005. I'd been a Christian for a number of years. Um, life had gone pretty well since I'd become a Christian. I, you know, my life was a mess back in like from 19, well, from like a long time ago, but I'm going to be nice to myself. We'll say like... <laughs> Uh, that was in my notes. So like trying to figure out when my life was a mess. My life was a mess for a while. And, but in around 1996, when I came to Christ, my conversion sort of led to over about five or so years, some major, major changes. So, so early in my conversions, things, my conversion sort of came through a sin in my life. And then things began to go well. I started to not drink as much. I was sobering up. I met a girl, got married. There was peace in our land. And then 2001, I get back from deployment in June. 9-11 happens. Um, that didn't really affect me so much because we're always kind of like fighting, but we were like in the SEAL teams, we felt we were invincible up to this point. Um, in 2003, June is where the first sort of catastrophic blow happened to me. And that was the call that my best friend in the world from the SEAL teams was, was killed in an operation in Afghanistan. And then shortly thereafter, um, you know, Anna and I, we lost our first child to miscarriage. And then there was a series of these other things. Um, I remember grappling with God. Um, questions in my brain that I think we struggle with. At the time, I don't think I was open about it because I wasn't open about anything, but I remember sort of wrestling with the, the idea of, and like maybe we lost this child because of this abortion that I have in my past and God's punishing me. Maybe because of this history of mine, and I wasn't sharing this with Anna at the time, like, Anna and I had a lot of growing to do, or I had more growing to do uh, before that sort of information came out. But it, this was sort of the blow wrestling through is God punishing me for these things. Um, we, I eventually went up to Pine Valley, a Christian camp up there for a men's retreat for, for like a day. And I remember just kind of going out in the woods, a place where you know, out in the ocean or out in the mountains, somewhere sort of where there's not people and there's just creation, where I feel close to God. I remember just opening up my Bible, just sort of crying out to him, God, what is going on here? What is happening in the world? Like, what did I do to deserve this? And I remember there, that was sort of the, 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 the first time that I had to sort of grapple with dealing with, like, God is good. The things that I was dealing with, it wasn't because he was punishing me. Like this is a huge lesson to realize the magnitude of the cross. That Jesus, as he was dying on the cross, the weight of my sin, past, present, and future, it was fully absorbed in the cross. Jesus fully and completely took the wrath that was due me and fully paid the penalty for me. So the things I was going through, it wasn't 
punishment. It wasn't discipline at that season of my life. I'm not saying that God doesn't, can't discipline us when we're in sin. But this wasn't God getting back at me for my sins. And sort of kind of understanding that as a Christian, I'm in this world and this world has fallen, that sin has wreaked havoc on this world. Having gone through the miscarriage and the death of my friend, um, seeing that like, certainly God could have, he has the power to stop that, but he allowed it to happen. And now that I'm over a decade through those instances, like I've seen over the years how those two events in my life, God used so that I could be used by him to minister and care for others in a way that um, I couldn't had I not gone through it. But it was a season where I was wrestling like Habakkuk. Lord, I'm calling out to you. Am I, am I doing something wrong? Like there was a, a bit of me like maybe I'm rubbing the rabbit's foot the wrong way and you're not. There is no rabbit's foot with God. He hears our prayers. You might not feel like he's hearing your prayers And as you're growing, going through a trial, our faith is is refined. There's something beautiful that occurs in us as we grow through these moments and we're sort of, we encounter God and we're faced with who he is. Uh, And as this book develops, we'll see that this book ends with Habakkuk still a little bit confused about what God is doing but he's on his face totally and completely in awe before him. Then the second question he asks, he continues sort of from the first, and he says, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists, contention arises, therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. He says, why do you make me look at this stuff? How is it, how is it that I, as a sinful, fallen man, am at my wit's end looking at this evil around me before you who are a just and holy God? I'm confused here, God. How come I, how come I'm at, I can't take it anymore? And yet you seem to, to not be even doing anything about it. The, the, the philosophical question he asked, the, the rest of if you're a holy and just God, how come I'm sick of this and you're not responding? As we look out, as you read the newspaper today, where there's a lot of sim, similarities. Like I debated bringing the newspaper. I thought, oh, people will think I'm too political. Like based on today's newspaper, I should have planned ahead a couple days ago. But today's paper, I'm like, I'm not getting politically minded. But I can assure you that the papers of any newspaper of any day, you open it and you're like, that's really depressing. Like we, <laughs> like why, why, Anna's always says, why do you read the paper every day? It's just depressing. Like I'm like, I'm compelled to. I don't know. But I look at the injustices around us, some of the things. Like, just look at the people around you. I mean, not, not in church, of course. We're all good people. <laughs> you know, in theory, as you go out amongst the, the around, there's people around you that, that don't go right. Like, the crimes that are committed, like the last crime that was committed to me was a hockey game. I kind of like, I came back from, we were all done with the hockey game, all hopped up on hockey, me and Gideon and Dave and... Dave's like, man, somebody took your windows and pushed them in. I'm like, ah, somebody was probably just parking and they were being nice and they pushed my windows in. And then I see the window and like there's gum underneath my door handle and somebody had spit a loogie on my window. And I'm like, eh, maybe that's not what happened. Like, like, why would they do that to my car? Like, I don't even know. Family's fighting. The law is ignored. Like the whole, like this whole law is ignored. Justice is not upheld. I think I must hang out with, I mean, I hang out with a lot of law enforcement. I see like a couple years ago, the whole Prop 47 basically said, hey, if crimes are committed, just let it go. And now there's Prop 57, which is saying, well, let's just undo, like those guys that are paying their punishment, let's just let them out and kind of make room for other guys and sort of get them back. And there are some people like I, to see this, there was a video of a lady whose husband was killed and they want to sort of undo it. And she's pleading like, my husband was killed. Why are you guys talking about letting the guy who killed him out? I mean, these are things, and I'm not trying to get political. I'm just trying to look at our, like, our culture. There's a lot of the same things. 
When I look at how justice gets perverted to like bigger pictures globally, like ISIS, terrorism, the things that are going on in this world, it can be like, God, are you, are you working? What are you doing? I think there's a lot of us in our world that are sort of burdened at this point. You know, I always kind of review the message with Anna. And she looked at me last night. And she's like, I sure hope you don't end here. Like, I sure hope you don't end here. I'm like, I'm kind of like, it's like a, te- a teaser for next week. Like, what's God going to say? Like, uh, <laughs> and she's like, oh, Gunnar, you're giving me flashbacks. And we went to Ecclesiastes. Please give us some hope. Uh, So my wife wins. If we, if we come down to verse 5, I'll let us sneak in. God responds. He says, look amongst the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days. If I told you, you would, or I was going to my own prayer, you would not believe if you were told. And we're not going to get in what God tells them because Habakkuk is going to be absolutely blown away in a bad way. I think the, that as we wrestle with these things, I feel like we, as humans, we're always going to wrestle with the idea of all of this, this evil, this wickedness, this injustice in the world. This morning as I like have my words of my wife sort of rattling in my head about hope, it all of a sudden struck me we just finished Nineveh or Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to the people of, of, of Nineveh because of their wickedness, their evil. And how did God end? Jonah, you're upset about this little plant. What about these people that I've been investing in, pouring myself out for? I created them. I want to save them. And you want me to just light them up like that? I think we... God desires all people to come to know him. God wants us who know him to be so filled with his grace, to be so filled with his love and mercy and kindness that even as we look at this world around us and those who don't see the same way that we see things, we're to be a light to them. We're to share the good news with them. And and I... And God works in mysterious ways. Like how the story's going to unfold is it, it, it's, it's almost more, not almost, it's way more than I can even fathom like why God would choose to work this way. But we'll see in this story that, that Habakkuk is totally and completely gripped with the majesty and awe of who God is. That the only way he can respond as he looks at this, even in his confusion, he says, you're God, I'm not God, and, and I will walk by faith, and I'll trust you through this. And we see that, that Habakkuk's faith grows through this trial. And so as, like this time next week, our nation will have selected a new president. Don't sigh yet, I hear some... God is in control. Uh, I, 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 I appreciate, like John said today, the scriptures make it very clear that regardless of the leader over us, God in his master plan, he is the one who appoints the leader. Good, evil, however. We can trust, and we as followers of God, we who have trusted in Christ more than anybody shouldn't be freaking out. Vote, cast. We, we, we live in this great nation where we have the ability to give input. To, our nation has changed. We're not a Christian nation anymore. We've got to like deal with it. We can complain about it forever. That, that we've sh- There has been a seismic shift in the culture we live in. We as Christians are still here. We are a citizen also of the kingdom of heaven. And so God has us here for a purpose. So we know, I know from reading the paper every single day, there's pictures of the United States flag sort of cut in half that we're a nation divided. So no matter who is the next president, we know that we're going to be a nation that's split. And I don't see in the script, 
God wants us to trust in him for provision, for care. Whatever happens, as long as we are walking with him, honoring him in our lives, it's going to be okay. Amen? Not quite, just to remind you guys. And so, Father, we, we do come before you, Lord, with, you know, in honesty, we, we are, I think it's safe to say that, that, that our nation as a whole, we are torn, Lord. It seems that the Christian influence and the Judeo-Christian influence in our nation has shifted away and is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And we who love you, Lord, we who long to be with you, when we're stuck here, are, we're torn. For we desire to see um, hearts transformed by the power of the cross. We desire families to be restored. We desire um, peace amongst peoples. And it, it's a bleak situation. And so, Lord, we pray that whatever, whatever the, even the outcome of this election, whoever it would be, we still live in this fallen world. And we cry, Maranatha, come, Lord. You're our only hope. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us that as trials come, as persecution comes, I pray that you would help our faith to be strengthened, that we would be able to stand in the midst of adversity, that we would allow um, the testimony of who Christ is to, to radiate from within us. We thank you that no matter what the trials, whatever they are, Lord, in you we have everything that we need. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We look to you, Lord, for wisdom and guidance as we lead our lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.